This is Christian Book Blurb, brought to you by author and songwriter Matt McClary. Get a behind-the-scenes glimpse into the lives of some of your favourite Christian authors. Hear about their books and faith. Also, why not check out my website, mattmcclary.com. Well, hello and welcome to Christian Book Blurb, the podcast that aims to encourage you and to help you grow in your discipleship as we explore relevant, inspiring and often hard-hitting themes and messages as we meet some amazing Christian authors and learn about their books, their lives and their faith on this twice-monthly podcast. I'm your host, Matt McClary. Thanks for joining me today. And on today's show, I'm going to be chatting to Hugh Osgood about his new book is Kindness Killing the Church. So, without further ado, let's welcome Hugh. Hello, Hugh. Hi, Matt. It's good to be able to join you. Thank you for joining us on um, the podcast today. It's it's really good to have you on with us. Um, now, it's an intriguing title. Is Kindness <laughs> Killing the the church um what do you mean by this title it's an interesting one um uh, as you're aware i've been sort of uh, right involved in the whole sort of spectrum of church life here in the uk sort of sitting up there at the top with the archbishops and everything else and had an opportunity to observe what's going on at the moment and one of the things that's really concerned me, okay, there's a lot of tension around on unity issues at the moment, but everyone's trying to be frightfully polite. Um, we, you know, we want to, uh, you know, to disagree agreeably. And, and, and one of my concerns about that is that sometimes that's just a polite way of shutting down the conversation. For me, it's the kind of um, polite kindness that would say, well, look, you know, we, we disagree on this, but, you know, rather than cause any offence, I'll just back off. Um, I'll go off and join my little enclave. You have your little enclave. And that's the way that we'll be. And I look at the early church and I think, goodness me, if that was the way they were thinking in the first century, we'd never have had the Council of Jerusalem. You know, the church in Antioch would have said, we'll go our way, we'll do our thing, we're the Gentile church, and Jerusalem can do its own stuff but they were prepared actually to sit down and to do the difficult engagement. And I just think that that and a whole load of other things indicate to me that the first century church had understood something about unity that was robust, that they were committed mm. to it. Of course they were committed to truth, but they wanted to make sure as well that they didn't lose that grip on each other. And I think that's mm. something that we've, we've got to be careful of. Otherwise, we're going to end up with, I don't mind a diverse church. That's not a problem at all. In fact, that I, I think the church should be really diverse because if you look at creation, God does diversity. <laughs> and I think the church should be fantastically diverse. But at the same time, I think that when it hasn't got a sense of commonality, I don't mind there being little fragments, little sections and all the rest, but there should be some sense of somehow in all of this, we are together. Now, I mm. don't think that's talking about an organizational unity. Um, and I do think that what we have, I, I'm very much challenged by Ephesians 4, where in the first part of the chapter, it talks about maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So we have a unity that's being given to us. But then later on in the same chapter, it talks about, you know, um, 
going for the unity of the faith so that we're no longer children tossed to and fro and that seems to be like something that we should be aiming towards and mm. speaking the truth in love is something that's in that same passage and it all talks about each part contributing so all of these things fascinate me and it makes me feel mm. that if we've got a sense that yeah we've got an underlying unity to maintain and then we've got something that we can aspire to and i think the church aspiring to um, deal with difficult issues i mean human sexuality is one that's around at the moment difficult issue I think we owe it to society to thrash that issue out as thoroughly as possible and, uh, uh, and to acknowledge that we don't initially agree on much at all on this, but we need to keep talking because in the end, if we're going to be salt in the earth, we've got to be producing saltiness rather than saltlessness. So I think this is partly why we need to keep engaging on some of these mm. tough things. That's great. Thank you for defining that. That's really good. Um, and of course, we're talking a lot about unity. Why? Why is unity so important? Why, as a Christian, should I be concerned about my unity with other Christians or indeed the unity of the church? Well, you know, when, when you give your life to Jesus and you're born again and you pass from death to life, one of the things that it says in 1 John is that we know that we pass from death to life in that we, we love our brothers and sisters. And, and so you're brought into a family. We've got one Father, we've got one Spirit, we've got one Saviour. And so just as there's a unity in the Godhead, there should be a unity in the church. But, you know, it's family. So there's differences within family. There are issues that come up. But it is that sense of family. And, and when we stop being family and sort of shut off different bits and pieces of it because it doesn't quite fit us, then we're losing something of the, the wideness. I think the early church was really good. I mean, Paul actually talked about uh, appreciating with all the saints what is the height, depth, breadth and length of God's love. And, uh, you know, it, if all we do is to love the people that we like, we're not really demonstrating something of that true love of God that's been shared abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You certainly have a voice um, in terms of church unity. You've, you've been involved um, in it for a long while. Can you just give our listeners um, a bit of a bit of history, a bit of background to your involvement in, in sort of church unity things. Oh, goodness me. How did I get where I got to? <laughs> I don't know, really. Um, oh, goodness. Well, look, I, I've been in ministry a long time, 50, 50 plus years now. Uh, when I started, um, I just had a, a, a kind of mixed background. I mean, my, my grandparents were Salvation Army officers. Um, I ended up being in an Anglican church, I offered for the Anglican ministry. They told me I was too young and inexperienced. They were absolutely right. <laughs> and, uh, and so then I just got, you know, my experience of preaching was on Methodist circuits in, in Cornwall. And, and uh, you know, I married a Baptist. So I've, I've got a kind of breadth myself, but, you know, really strong sense that, that it's the life of Christ in us, that, that, that that's the hope of glory that we, we've, we've got to see. So I really want to see the church re-energized. I think when I look across the church and look at church history, and I think, my goodness, each of these denominations were birthed at a moment when God was doing something incredible with them. 
And if they could just get back some of that sense of God purpose, that would be incredible. And we'd see that kind of diversity. So, you know, I, I've been on this journey a long time. <laughs> I, I've, I've been in different areas, I've worked on different areas of unity. I mean, my doctorate was actually involved in bringing African Pentecostalism into British evangelicalism. Uh, I then found myself actually on behalf of British evangelicalism, trying to speak into the wider Christian world and discovering that that was a challenge. <laughs> mm, <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, it's been that kind of journey. So um, multi-denominational, multi-generational, multinational, <laughs> I've, I've sort of been right across the board. And, and you know, I, I do find I, I get into some privileged positions, you know, I end up sort of sitting with bishops and archbishops and, uh, but, but I still love just being out in the ordinary mm. places and mm. doing that, mm. that's where. You know, preaching in small congregations is great. <laughs> so having such sort of a wide overview, um, when in your book you, you sort of start to address um, certain church types, as it were, um, yeah. you know what you're talking about because you've experienced <laughs> all these different yeah, sure. types. Absolutely. And, and I decided that I would write this as if I was writing into a local situation rather than into a national or international situation. And it wasn't too difficult. I mean, I, I looked at what I thought were, these days, you know, we can talk about styles of church rather than denominations, because yeah. I, I, I gave the book to an Anglican friend. He said, we've got all of those styles within, us, <laughs> within the Anglican world. And it's true. So it's not about denominationalism. It's about different styles, different emphases. And mm. uh, I wanted to address those. And I could see, funny enough, I, I, I asked an American friend, I said, would this work in the States? He said, yeah, we've got, we've got that kind of pattern as well. So yeah. it, it was trying to get that sense and to actually trying to say to these churches, you've got something valuable that you bring into the mix that we need. God raised you up for a purpose. So we need the diversity, but we need it to be based on our God-given callings rather mm. than what we might have slipped into over the centuries. Mm, mm, mm. So let's look at this, the, the structure of your book then, um, Is Kindness Killing the Church? It's written in, in, in quite a stylistic way, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. Can you explain that to us, how it's kind of knits together <laughs> yeah. and what the different yeah. sections okay. lead on to and all that? Yeah, well, it was quite fun, actually, to do. Um, I think that I was quite clear that I could easily identify seven stereotypical churches and, and work on that and to say something positive and constructive in each situation and, and bring out that sense of diversity. I wanted to do that because I, I do think that in the past, some ideas of unity have been too much about uniformity and coming under some kind of single hierarchical structure. I, I'm just not into that at all. I, and I don't think it was there in the first century church. I don't think Jerusalem ruled the roost. I, I just think that, you know, God raised up churches and they learned to relate to each other. So I was coming from that. So I wanted that kind of diversity there. And then, of course, it wasn't too difficult to realize that, you know, if I couldn't use the fact that there were seven churches in Revelation, somewhere along the line, I'd miss it. But one of the things I realized was that it would have been quite crass to simply say, oh, this style of church equals Laodicea, this style of church equals, you know, Ephesus, this style of church mm. equals Thyatira. I just realized that wasn't going to work. And the other thing I didn't want was it to be a negative book. I really felt that what we need at the moment in the, all the unity discussions 
is the kind of handful of flour that takes the death out of the pot, if I could use the, mm -hmm. the two Kings 4 illustration with Elisha and the sons of the prophets. And, and I wanted that um, sense of positivity to come across, that this was something that was like a positive word to these churches. So I had to do something which um, I was quite excited about, which was assuming that the leaders of the seven churches in Revelation having received a prescription from Jesus, would actually have applied it and come out the other side of it. So, so instead of just you know, saying, oh yes, we're, we're all down the same hole <laughs> going through problems, <laughs> it was like saying, actually, we came out of this, we, we applied the prescription Jesus gave us. So that was one of the things I wanted to do. And also I wanted to, as, as it were, use a corporate voice from those imagine seven leaders in Revelation. So that, as it were, you know, we were asking them as a, a bunch of leaders to say, what would you want to say to us? And I felt that mm. what I was doing was, it sounds crazy, but I was like saying to them, this is where we're at, what would you want to say? Now I realized it was all coming out of my own understanding, but it did give me a framework. The other thing I wanted to do was to really use first century church history to bring out that robustness of unity. So, you know, I wanted to start right back when Jesus chose the 12 and to talk about what was happening there and then to move on and look at what happened, you know, at the Pentecost and then move on and look at, you know, each stage of church development. So in some ways, ending up at the end of the first century with the seven churches in the Aegean region, that, you know, five of them had got flickering lights and needed something to happen was a way of saying, look, hey guys, you know, this is the way things pan out. We, we start with, with, with a, a level of life that we need to maintain. And uh, at, at times God will bring a, a mid-course correction, which he did to those seven churches, to bring us back on track. And so, so we've got the narrative of, of Acts that's running through the book. Mm. And uh, at, at strategic points, I just break off and say, now let's look at one of our stereotypical churches and ask mm -hmm. what the seven churches in Revelation, once their leadership had restored those churches, what, what would have been said and what encouragement can they give? So, so that's it, really. That's the way the book works. Uh, that's, there's a little bit on great. the front end about theology, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's really good. And having received a copy of the book, um, thank you very much. Um, that I must say, the 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 stories of of acts. Um, when I say retell, um, I don't want my listeners to um, get the wrong idea because you're not you're not doing like a historical fiction bit. What, what I think you do really well is you just really contextualize what's going on and who's with who and, and who's doing what and going where and who's left who behind and why that matters because they're related to someone else over here. And you just really contextualize those, those stories um, to, and, and really helps especially for my, myself it really helped me to start to understand ah yes okay that's why this decision was made or that's why that was really difficult um so so that's really good is kindness this this kindness you've described is that the biggest hindrance to unity or or is there something else um it points to what is the real hindrance i mean the real hindrance is 
uh, a lack of engagement, really. That, that is it. I mean, it, 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 means, it means that the unity that we end up with can be very superficial. And to be honest, I don't think it's going to cut it. If we ended up with a superficial unity, even if we ended up with a monolithic church where we were all sitting under kind of one governance structure, all coming out with exactly the same statements, a bit like a monotone, I don't think it would help the world at all. Um, mm. You know, I think despite the fact that the world often tells the church, the reason we don't believe is because you're all so dis different from each other. I, I, I think that's rubbish. <laughs> I think, you know, there's a lot of supermarkets, but it didn't stop people shopping. <laughs> so, so different churches. So, yeah, what's the deal? And, but I do think that what we, what we do need is we need the kind of unity that enables us to work on issues, even really difficult issues, and, and actually realize that we are meant to be the salt for society rather than society being salt for the church. And mm. I think that in some ways what we're doing at the moment is allowing the church to take the world's flavor rather than actually realizing we're meant to be providing some flavor and, 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 and preservation and all the other aspects of salt into the world. So, um, yeah, I think kindness was my way of politely saying, come on, guys, look, robust engagement is what we need. We, we need to stick at it. Um, and if we disagree, don't just walk away from each other saying we've agreed to disagree. Let's agree to agree and disagree on disagreeing and stick at it and say, look, for the good of society, to be salt in the earth, let's make sure that we we come up with the right answers. And I think, you know, this, this, this to me makes sense. I mean, I've got a medical background, so I, I'm used to sort of evidence-based decision-making. And yet I think one of the things that we're lacking in, in some of our social decisions at the moment is evidence-based. And I think that here's something that the church could do. The other thing I, I think and is that we, we back away from the big questions. So we're, we're, we're thrashing around having arguments about um, human sexuality and realizing that we do have different positions, but not addressing the roots of that, that we don't have discussions about what is the nature of God? Uh, what is the nature of the gospel? What is the nature of the church? What's the whole issue of the authority of scripture? Um, what should be the relationship between church and society? And because we don't have those discussions, we don't actually get down to some of the things. I think this is an incredible opportunity at the moment for people with strong opinions to actually present their opinions well, to listen to what other people are saying, and then, as it were, represent their opinions without changing them, but in a way that addresses the concerns of others. I think internal conversations in the church really should be taking place and 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 letting that help us come to a point where we've got clear things to say to the world mm. yes yes lots to lots to digest there and and really really good message thank you um we are going to come back and continue our discussion with hugh osgood um just after these messages so join us in a few moments if you enjoy listening to this podcast, you can help keep it on the web. All you've got to do is buy me a coffee. 
head over to buymeacoffee.com slash mattmcclary to make a donation. There is a link in this episode's show notes. So go on, buy me a coffee today and help this podcast to keep supporting Christian books and authors. And we're back and I'm speaking with um, the author Hugh Osgood um, about his book is Kindness Killing the Church. And I just wanted to let you know that I have a copy of this book um, that I'll be giving away in a um, newsletter giveaway coming up soon. So head over to my website, mattmcclary.com, and sign up to my newsletter. And once a month, my newsletter subscribers have the opportunity of winning a book. And Hugh Osgood's Is Kindness Killing the Church is going to be one of those in one of the months coming up. So do head over there and sign up so you can get yourself a copy of that. So, Hugh, just before the break, we were speaking a lot about your book, and there's some really um, helpful thoughts you had, and also some challenges that, that you threw out, which I think are, are very useful for us to um, um, think about. One of the things we like to do here on the podcast is to get to know you a little bit better. Um, so so we, we've learned a lot about your book. Um, and you have given us a bit of insight into sort of your sort of upbringing and different church uh, cultures and that sort of thing. But but who is Hugh Osgood? Um, whereabouts, whereabouts do you live? Um, do you have any hobbies? Have you got time for hobbies? Um, is writing books the only thing you do? Or is there lots of other stuff going on? What, what can you share with us? Oh, wow. Well, what do you want to know? Um, I live in South London. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was born in West London. Uh, grew up in Brighton and Hove, uh, went to school there, came back to university in London um, and uh, had a really strong call into ministry. Uh, when I was originally uh, at university to do medicine and dentistry, I'd got my heart set on being a maxillofacial surgeon. And um, yeah, and then uh, I had this really strong call from God um, to, to be in the ministry. And and uh, as I, I said earlier, I, I, I contacted the Anglican Church and said, here am I, you know, send me. <laughs> they said, no, you're too young, you're too inexperienced. Then uh, their advice was finish the dentistry and contact us again. Um, yeah, and I did that. I finished my dental degree. And then amazingly, I, I landed uh, some really amazing jobs in maxillofacial departments. So I really felt that God was saying to me, OK, you gave up the medicine, but before you go and do what I'm really calling you to do, I'm going to give you an opportunity to see <laughs> what you wanted to do. So that, that was a real privilege. And I was on the front end of some really experimental stuff then back in the 70s, which was just incredible. So I, in, in some ways, you know, God gave me my heart's desire there. Um, but I was praying and saying, Lord, you know, um, I know you spoke to me and said that I needed to give back into the system because I'd had in those days so much training at government expense, which is not like it is now. And, um, and I, I kept sort of saying, Lord, there must be a better way. I know I'm happy to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but I want to render to God the things that are God's. And then I came across this idea. I thought, oh, wow, I could be, I could be a medical missionary. And then I could be rendering to Caesar and God at the same time. And uh, <laughs> by this time, I'd, I'd uh, managed to establish a relationship with uh, a, a, a nurse who, who was actually uh, uh, the, the sister on the intensive care unit <laughs> where I was working in the hospital. And, uh, and we, we, were, we, we were accepted to go out to Africa as, as missionaries. And we were so excited and our churches were getting behind us. 
And then the project that we were going to lost its funding. And so we were put on hold. And I, I was so confused. I thought, come on, Lord, what do you want me to do? And, uh, and that was a tough moment, really. And we were just about to get married and go out to Africa. We thought we got it all organized. And uh, what happened in the end was that I had a, a, a real challenge that came across in a book that was written by well-known missionary statesman who said, don't think you can do something overseas that you haven't done at home first. And I thought, well, I thought I was going to church plant overseas. <laughs> you know, I'd got this vision of being a sort of missionary, doing these things, planting churches and all the rest of it. And I soon realized that I'd got the wrong end of the stick. You know, I mean, this was a sort of colonial approach to mission, which was obviously mm -hmm. rubbish. And, and the best <laughs> I could do was actually to realize that immersing yourself in someone else's culture and learning from them is good. But, you know, where was I going to get church planting experience in the UK in the early 70s? Well, it so happened that this was right on the front end of the house church movement. And so we started a church in our home that grew and uh, and, and just grew and grew. Uh, and at the same time, I was doing a lot of student ministry, um, found myself getting more and more involved in interchurch missions. So um, worked with Luis Palau, and then I did a lot of the organization for Billy Graham's last mission in this country in 89. And, and so, you know, I was getting more and more involved in that. And the missionary society did get back and said, when are you coming out to Africa? And at this point, it was a case of, well, you know, someone had given me this prophetic word, which was mm. really bizarre. They said, I don't think God wants you to go to Africa. He'll send Africa to you. And I didn't realize that suddenly the African diaspora was going to be knocking on my door as it did saying, hey, come on, help us be culturally relevant in the UK. So mm. there you go. That's, that's mm. me. That, that, that's a lot of who I am and what I yeah. do. And I hope that helps. Great. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Do you have time amongst all the stuff that you still do to, to relax? Oh, definitely. Yeah. My wife and I, we love walking. Um, basically, every Monday, we, we, I, I take the day off. We do a long walk. Um, sometimes we're leading it as a community walk, or she is. I, I just go along and sort of be tail end Charlie, making sure everyone keeps up. <laughs> but, uh, um, but yeah, I, I love doing that. Um, yeah, I, 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 I used to play the piano a lot when I was in my teens and, and then mm -hmm. went for a long time when I didn't. And so, you know, I, I, I do play still. Um, not as well as I did when I was 18, which is really frustrating, <laughs> you know. So Have you got I, a favorite? I'm still. I'm still determined to be able to play all of Chopin's polonaises, but I mean, they, wow. they, they are pretty tough going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't think he'd recognize some of them when I attempt them. <laughs> Have you got any favorite foods? Favorite foods? Um, yeah, I do like curry. I, I do, which is just mm. as well in some of the places I go to, India and Pakistan and so on. Um, yeah, I, but yeah, I'm not a great food. And, and I, th um, I think we, we, we have a love of pickles between us. I think, I think oh, we both yeah, like terrible. A, a pickle. My, my wife says, what's wrong with you? Why do you use all the relishes? I say, I, I use my, I have very weak taste buds, so I need strong flavors. That's my excuse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's excellent. Um, have you got anything coming up soon in, in terms of books? Um, are you are you working on something else at the moment, or, or are you working doing on other about, about about five? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, I wrote about four books during lockdown. 
Uh, one, this one is kind of killing the churches out. I've got another one called Unstoppable Church, which should be out. Mm. And then I've got a, a book series, which at the moment we've done one, which is called Because I Live, which uh, I really love because it's like a, a coffee table book. It's and, a lovely uh, book. Yeah, and, and I, I just really can see the value of having books that you can give to non-Christian friends and that they, they feel quality. And I've got three more books I want to write in that, um, in that style. So, yeah, I've got, I've got stuff around. I'm, I'm, not, mm. I'm not dying of boredom. <laughs> oh, interesting. No, really good, really good. And where can people find out more about you and about your books and where can they buy them from? Are you on social media or websites? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'm, I, I fortunately have some help with my social media. Otherwise, it would be totally non-existent. Um, <laughs> so it, it does appear. You, I, I think, you know, this is, this, is, this is me on Instagram. I'm on Instagram and I tweet occasionally and I'm on Facebook, you know. Um, so TikTok not. <laughs> TikTok's got its challenges at the moment. Um, yeah, so I am out there. Uh, I, my website is just hewosgood.com. So that's yeah. easy to find. And I, yeah. I'm quite easy on Google. I think there's some medical student out in the States who shares the same name as me, but it's not particularly common. So it's a bit like you, Matt. Yeah. Everyone can find you. So everyone yeah. can find me as well. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and uh, yeah, you can find books on, on my website. Um, there's loads of preach material as well, stuff that's gone out on TV, radio. So, yeah, there's, uh, it's, it's a resources-rich website. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good website. And what we're going to do for, for the sake of our listeners is we're going to put a link to your website in the episode description of this episode. So if you want to um, find out more about Hugh, have a look at some of the other resources he's got or watch the, the videos or whatever else, um, head over to his website. You can click on the link in the notes to this episode and make your way over there. Um, well, Hugh, we have sadly run out of time. We've come to the end of our podcast. It's been fascinating chatting with you um, about church unity um, and hearing more about you and your life. Thank you so much for joining us today. Matt, it's been a real privilege and thank you. And thank you to the listener as well. Thank you for listening to this episode. And I hope that it has been a blessing to you and has encouraged you and maybe challenged you as well, especially in the areas of church unity. Um, just before you go, I wanted to remind you that this um, our show has a Facebook group. So if you head over to Facebook, um, have a search for fans of Christian Book Blurb, you can join us on there and we have some discussions going on. You can ask some questions to future guests we can discuss the topics so for example church unity we can get a discussion going on there about what what church unity looks like for you or some of the challenges you might be facing that are particular in your context and that sort of thing so head over to um, our facebook group fans of christian blog blurb and join in there don't forget, we come out every two weeks or so. We have two shows a month. So there will be a new episode of the Christian Book Blurb podcast coming your way very soon. And we hope to see you there. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to Christian Book Blurb with your host, Matt McClary. Do give it a like, give it a share and let your friends know all about it. We do hope to see you again soon on another Christian Book Blurb.